Uh, Please take uh, your copy of God's Word. Join me in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we've been making our way through this book for the last few weeks, uh, and tonight we are in the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter number 4, let me begin reading in verse number 1 and following. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Excuse me. That he descended, uh, verse number uh, 10, is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some teachers, or excuse me, evangelists and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So may God add his blessings to the reading of his word tonight. Chapter number four marks a distinct uh, division in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Chapters one, two, and three are more doctrinal in nature. But when you come to chapter four, five, and six, they are much more practical. In chapter four, five, and six, you will find great practical themes such as the gift of the Holy Spirit into the lives of the believer and how you and I uh, are... are, uh, are recipients of God's Holy Spirit who lives within us. That's a very practical truism. We find uh, mentioned in chapters 4, 5, and 6 the um, importance of living a sanctified life, being being unspotted from the world, being separated from the world, separated unto God. We are also given in this second division uh, the great Christian responsibilities and how we're to live for the Lord. Husband and wife responsibilities, how a husband is supposed to love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and how a wife's supposed to respond uh, to the spiritual leadership of her husband in the family. And then he also talks about the children's responsibility. So this is a very, very practical second division that you find. So as the Apostle Paul is writing, you remember the location for which Paul is writing Ephesians? He is in the Mamertine prison in Rome. So this is one of the four prison epistles. So it's not like he's on vacation. It's not like everything is going his way. He is in a prison. And in this prison, he writes this letter back to a church that he was instrumental in planting all the way back in Acts chapter number 18. And we won't take time to go back and look at that tonight because we've been studying Acts on Wednesday night. But in Acts chapter 18, Paul makes his very first visit to the city of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, he makes his second uh, missionary journey to uh, Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 also records just an incredible amount of success 
as the gospel was shared and people began to respond to the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 19 also talks about some of the conflict that the Ephesian church had and some of the conflict that Paul experienced uh, when he began to plant that church uh, in that city. Now you'll remember as the church started out, it was uh, doing wonderful things for God. It was growing and moving forward and it was exciting. But you'll remember when John who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos in about 90 A.D., 92 A.D., writes the book of Revelation. He writes to seven churches in Asia Minor, and one of those churches is the church at Ephesus, the same church that we're reading the letter that Paul had addressed to that church years and years earlier. This was in about 63, 64 A.D., something like that. So just uh, about 20 years, 30 years later, John would write to this church in Revelation, and you remember he gave them a commendation, and he said that you've worked hard for God. You've done good things for the Lord. You've been faithful to the service of God. But then he gave them an indictment. Do you remember what that was? He said, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. Here was a church that over time, over the course of just two or three decades, had sunk into a place where they were no longer hot for God. You remember the Lord had said in the book of Revelation to the church at Laodicea, he said, I would rather you be hot or cold. Because if you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. In other words, it's, it's nauseating to God. Well, Ephesus was a church that had become indifferent toward the things of God. And they were in desperate need of a revival. In fact, John, when he writes it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, repent and do your first works. And he says, the Lord says, or else I will come and I'll remove the church out of its place. And apparently, Ephesus never had revival. They never repented. Because they're in Asia Minor today, Turkey, it's one of the darkest places on the face of the planet for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that one of the locations of one of the first churches in, in, in the New Testament times is now a place where the gospel does not have free course to go among the people. So nonetheless, Paul is in prison when he's writing this epistle, one of these four prison epistles. The theme throughout this book has been one of unity. In fact, I'd ask you as we move through this over the last couple of weeks to look at the word together. You go back to chapter number one and you find it in verse number 10, together. If you go to chapter two, you find it in verse number five. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us or made us alive together. Verse six, you see it again in chapter two. He has raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places. So do you get the theme? If you go all the way down to verse 22, he says, in whom you are builded together, a habitation of God through the Spirit. So the theme for the book of Ephesians is unity, togetherness, oneness. He stresses oneness as well as togetherness. If you go to verse number 15 of chapter 2, you will see in the last sentence that he says, for to make in himself of two one new man. No longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are, we are Christians and there's no difference. There's no division. One new man. Verse 16, 
and that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross. Verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit. And then, of course, when you get to verse number 5 and 6 of chapter 4 that I read to you tonight, you see all of the usage of that word one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So what is the great theme of Ephesians? It is unity, working together, serving together with all that there is that can divide us and all the individuality that we might have. What we have in common is far greater than what would ever divide us. So we work together in unity. The Bible says, can two walk together except they be in agreement And we want to be in agreement about the wonderful gospel and our opportunities to share the gospel around the world. Because, listen, it is the gospel. It is the gospel that is the hope for our world. Paul said in the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel, good news, is life-changing is transformative. So we all work together to promote this this spread of this gospel. So as we come to chapter number four, he continues this thought of the unity of the Spirit. Notice how he identifies himself. He said, I therefore, he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. It's the second time he's used that. Go back to chapter three, look in verse number one. For this calls I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. You see, on the outside, you look at Paul, and you would say, he's a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He is in the Mamertine prison in Rome, chains on his hands and feet. But in reality, Paul said, though I might be outwardly chained, inwardly, he said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Remember my life's verse that I quoted to you last week that comes from the pen of Paul? Ephesians 3.8, Paul says this about himself, unto me who am less then the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. So Paul saw himself as a prisoner of Christ, compelled, compelled to do the work that God had called him to do. So as he, from a Roman prison, writes to this church, he says to them, I beg you, I beg you, that you walk, that you live your life worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Oftentimes, the Christian life is referred to as a, as a walk. We walk in the Spirit, the Bible says. We walk in unity, the Scripture says. So as we live our life, it is pictured as a journey. And our faith journey, Paul says, that we are to live that in a worthy manner, not like Samson, who for much of his life, as I mentioned this morning, lived it in mockery, but we want our lives to end in, 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 in a purpose like Samson's finally did, knowing that in our journey, as we live this Christian life, we want to walk to adequately represent the Lord Jesus in all that we do. He describes that, notice, with lowliness, with meekness with long-suffering. That's patience. Look at this. Forbearing one another in love. 
that we recognize that everybody in the church are sinners saved by grace. And everybody in the church, we are imperfect people. Chuck Swindoll uh, likens church members this way. He said, <clears throat> he said that church members are, are like porcupines. And porcupines, when it's cold weather, they all, in order to stay warm, they all huddle together as close as they can get to stay warm. But what happens when porcupines get too close to each other? They begin to prick, prick one another, right? And separate some. And he says that it's the coldness of this world that drives God's people together. And we come together and we look for solace and we look for comfort. We look for encouragement. We look for instruction. We want to hear about God's grace as we, as we try to live this Christian life. And then when we all come together, we find out that there's not a perfect one among us. And But Paul would say, even though there's not a single one that is perfect, the Savior that you do serve, He is perfect. And His perfection far supersedes our imperfection. Because listen, we could focus on one another's failures all day long and we would never get finished and still have plenty more to focus on. But what we're to do is to take our eyes off one another, listen, and to keep our eyes on Christ Jesus. Amen? Boy, are y'all with me tonight? Amen? Keep our eyes on the Lord. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. How do we live this Christian life? He says lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he gives us those verses. One body, that's the church of the Lord Jesus. One Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice this, one God and Father of all, who is above all. Beside that, I wrote out the word sovereign. Sovereign. God is sovereign in this universe. He doesn't lead by committee. He doesn't lead by a vote. God created the world, listen, and He is sovereign in all that He does. Every decision that He makes is always right. Paul says that there's one God and Father of all who is above all. And there are times we may not understand what he's up to, but he's sovereign in every aspect of life. He's sovereign in salvation, and he's sovereign in sanctification, and he's sovereign in justification, he's sovereign in glorification. Every, every aspect of life, God is above all, Paul says, and through all. I wrote the word controlling right there. Not only is God sovereign, but he lives in all of us who are Christians, and he is controlling our lives if we let him. In fact, the Scripture tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I somehow get more of God, but it is, it is how much of myself do I allow God to control how much do I willingly give of myself to him so that God can have my life, as the Scripture says, to love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, don't we all fall short of that? 
We do. We all fall short of that. But yet that is the mandate. He is above all. He is sovereign. He is through all. And notice this. He is in you all. I've written down the word indwelling. Meaning that he lives within us and promises to abide with us. So notice now, verse number 7. To every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might feel all things. Now, I will be honest with you. These passages in some circles are very controversial. They're not controversial to me because I believe I understand what God is saying. Not because I'm smarter than anybody else, because I'm way down on the chart for that, that's for sure. But I do believe I understand it in the context, and I know what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. There are some who would say that when Jesus died, that Jesus literally went to hell and spent three days in hell. That he descended, before he ever ascended, that he descended first into hell. What exactly does that mean when Paul writes about that and says that he descended uh, before he ascended? Well, it is a reference in my estimation as to what had taken place with Christ during the, the three days that he was in the grave from his crucifixion until he rose on Easter Sunday morning. What took place? What took place in the, in, the, in the other world, if you will? Well, I believe the scriptures teach us that Christ uh, went to paradise and he preached a message of liberation to those Old Testament saints who by faith had kept the law of God, looking forward to believing that there would be a Messiah that would come one day. They were the, the, the spirits that were in prison, is what the Apostle Peter describes it. Let me show you, let me show you an illustration of this. Or really, it's not an illustration, it's an actual story. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16, if you will, for a moment. Luke chapter 16. Now, there, there are some who would say that uh, Luke chapter 16 is a parable. Uh, and and uh, others would say that it's not a parable. Well, you know, in, in any of the parables, Jesus never gives a proper name. Um, but in Luke 16, he does give a proper name. So from that, we might say it's not a parable. But here's, here's what I believe about the parables. I don't believe the parables were just made up stories. I believe the parables were actually stories that took place that Jesus saw those things taking place and drew a spiritual analogy from those and he gave them to us as parables. It's the Greek word para, parabole, which means to cast alongside. It's, a, it's, a, it's an earthly story that is cast alongside it, a heavenly teaching or a heavenly meaning. So in Luke chapter 16, you have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Go to verse number 19 and look at this story. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. 
and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, now notice this, into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. You notice the difference, the location of each. One, he says, <coughs> pardon me, Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, not because he was rich, but only because he had never made any room for God in his life. He died, was buried. Look at his location, verse 23. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment. And he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now here's the picture. If you can get this, get this kind of settled in your, in your own personal thinking. When, uh, when Jesus descended during the time of his uh, crucifixion, he went to the location called Abraham's bosom. And about the clearest way that I can explain that would be in the heart of the earth. At this time, it was divided into two sections or two compartments, if you will. One side was called Abraham's bosom or another place in Scripture, it's called paradise. Paradise. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say to the thief who said, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom? Jesus said, today you will be with me where? In paradise. Where was paradise? We think about that being in heaven, but in actuality, it wasn't heaven at that time. It was in the heart of the earth in the place called Abraham's bosom. That's where all of the Old Testament saints, their souls were kept. They couldn't go to heaven because their sins had not been paid for. Not a single sin had ever been paid for until Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. So all of the Old Testament saints, they went to a place called paradise. Now, it was heaven-like, meaning there was no suffering, there was no sorrow, no heartache, but it was a place for the departed souls of the Old Testament saints. So in the heart of the earth, as two compartments, one was paradise or Abraham's bosom where all of the believers of the Old Testament would reside. The other side is what is known as Hades. Some translations render it as Hades. King James here uses the word hell. And it is the location where all of the unbelievers throughout the Old Testament would go upon their death. All right? Well, in this story, when Lazarus dies, he goes to one side, which is Abraham's bosom, the rich man dies, he goes to the other side, which is, which is Hades or hell. And the Bible says there, in hell, this rich man could look across this great gulf, this great divide that separated these two compartments, and he could see Lazarus comforted in paradise. Notice what he says there. Verse 23 and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember 
that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Now look at this. Beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm. There's a great gulf fixed so that those in Abraham's bosom cannot cross into Hades. Those in Hades cannot cross into, into Abraham's bosom. You can't go back and forth, he said. And so look at his request in verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So you see in that story that there was a place called Paradise or Abraham's bosom where all of those who were believers resided upon their death. Hades or hell was the place where unbelievers would reside uh, upon their death. And when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, the Scripture teaches us here in Ephesians 4, if you go back there, that before He ascended into heaven, that He first descended into the lowest parts of the earth. And when He descended to paradise, and some would say that it was also to hell to preach a message of judgment, not that He actually lived in hell for three days but that he preached a message of judgment to those who were the unbelievers and then to those who were in paradise. He preaches a message of liberation to say, I defeated death, I have conquered Satan, and I have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And that he, upon his resurrection, led captivity captive. And all of the souls that were in paradise returned and would, would ultimately go and make their home in heaven with God. Again, never before could they go be with God in heaven because their sins had not been paid for until Jesus died on the cross. But once Jesus died on the cross, all their sins were paid for, forgiven, washed away, and now everybody who is saved can come into the very presence of God. So Jesus, Jesus, the Bible said, uh, led captivity captive. All of those spirits living in paradise Follow him as he is resurrected, and then they will make their way into heaven. In fact, the Scripture says when that took place, that hell enlarged itself. So Abraham's bosom is no longer in the heart of the earth where it used to be. It is now, it is now heaven where the saints go. So what is, what is hell now? Hell is still in the heart of the earth as far as we understand it in the Scriptures. And that is where every unbeliever goes. But that is not the final destination of every unbeliever. Because the Bible says, at the great white throne judgment, we look at it this way. Hell is like, hell is like jail. All right, If you commit a crime, you go to jail. If you get arrested, you go to jail. And you stay in jail until you stand before the judge on your court date. And when you stand before the judge and he declares you guilty, then you go to prison, all right? So hell is like the jail cell, and that's where people who do not know Christ go when they die. So the Bible says in the book of Revelation that at the great white throne judgment, 
which is a judgment just for the unbelievers. The believers will not appear before that judgment. But the unbelievers appear before the great white throne judgment. And this is what the Scripture says. That death and hell gave up their dead. And those who had been in hell, jail, come and they stand before the judge, the righteous judge of the universe. And because their name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, the Scripture says, those who had been in hell who now stand before the righteous judge of the universe, that they go to their final destination, prison, which is the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever and ever and ever. So today, hell is still, as far as we know, in the heart of the earth. But it's not the final destination of the wicked. The final destination of the wicked is the lake of fire. The final destination of the believers is not Abraham's bosom the way it was in the Old Testament and then the start of the New. But the final destination of every believer, listen, is to be home with the Lord Jesus. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Thank God for that, right? That when we die, that we no longer have to spend one second, not one nanosecond, separated from the Lord. But we close our eyes here, and we open our eyes in a city called glory. So when you go back to Ephesians, you'll note now that he says in verse 9 that he ascended, but what is it? That he's descended first to the lower parts of the earth to Abraham's bosom to preach that message of liberation. He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens that he might feel all things. And notice what he says as the theme again for, for Ephesians is unity and oneness and cooperation as we build the household of faith. In fact, let me remind you of this from last Sunday before I read you the next verse. If you go back to chapter 2, look at the condition we were all in before Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12. He lists a series of, um, of, of, of things that, that uh, were part of us before we came to know Christ. Notice verse 12. At that time, the time without Christ... You were, without Christ, here it is, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of the promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. That's life before Christ. Go down to verse number 19. Look at life with Christ. Now, therefore, look at this, and I love this verse, you are no more strangers and foreigners. But now, he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. What made the difference? It is what you do with Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? It is what we do with his death upon the cross. Do we appropriate that into our lives or, to, or do we reject it? If we reject it, we're still strangers and aliens and foreigners from the commonwealth of God. But if we accept him as our Savior, then we become part of the household of faith and we're working together in unity and in oneness to build the body of Christ, the church, that can go into all the world with the good news of the gospel. And in order to make that a reality, that upon the resurrection of Jesus, that he empowered his church, his people, with the giftedness necessary to go out and do the work that he's called us to do. That's why when you go back to chapter 4, look in verse number 11. He says, and he gave some apostles, some 
prophets. By the way, uh, the apostles are uh, no longer uh, here, all right? There is not what some would call apostolic succession, meaning that uh, an apostle laid their hands on another apostle, and on down the line they laid their hands on another one, and then another one, and then, and then ultimately it came to them and that they're an apostle. No, when the last of the apostles died in the first century, there are no more apostles. We are dis- we're disciples now, followers of Christ, but we're not apostles in the sense of the word that the apostle Paul was an apostle. So, he gave some apostles, some prophets, uh, prophets today, they do not foretell, but they do forthtell. Meaning that in the Old Testament, a prophet would speak for God and would tell the people what's going to happen. As a pastor, the only thing I can predict is what God's Word has already said. I'm not a prophet nor are there prophets who exist today that can tell us 100% what's going to exist or what's going to happen out in the world. The only information we have from that is what God's Word has to say. So as a prophet, we foretell what's going to happen as God has already said how it's going to happen. This is our source of authority. By the way, you, you always know that if a prophet is real and genuine in the Scriptures, is if 100% of, his, of, of what he had to say was actually true, actually, if it actually came true, then you would know that he was from God. So apostles today, we forth, or prophets today, we foretell. In other words, we just simply repeat what God has already told us in his word. Notice, some evangelists, I don't want to embarrass Brian. I don't think Brian is embarrassable. But Brian has the giftedness of evangelism upon his life. And uh, it is truly an inspiration to know him and to be with him. And just a couple of weeks that we were there in Guyana, I knew him, got to know him in a way that I had not really known him in the year that, since I had met him. And it is obvious that God has gifted him with evangelism. And the passion that he would preach with was truly remarkable. In a church where a small congregation of people in a village, what, uh, Warapoka, 600 people maybe, Brian, something like that, in very primitive conditions, but I'm telling you, Brian preached as if there were 10,000 people present that day, each time that I heard him. And he has that gift of evangelism. You say Dr. Billy Graham had that gift of evangelism where he could just stand and preach to thousands of people or to two or three people. But as an evangelist, to be able to draw the net and to see people to respond to the gospel. What a blessing. Not everybody is gifted as an evangelist. Now, everybody's called to do the work like that in sharing our faith, but not everybody has that giftedness. But Brian certainly has that. Some pastors and teachers. And when I look at my own life, I believe that's what God has called for me, and that's his calling for me. Uh, This is only a a very small list that is expanded upon in the book of of, uh, Corinthians when you see more of the gifts, such as the gifts of hospitality, uh, the gifts of prayer, other gifts that God has given to people. The long and the short of it in this incomplete list or partial list is this. Why does God give us gifts? Remember, what are we building? 
the household of faith. How are we doing it? In togetherness, in unity, in oneness, in cooperation, working together. We're building the household of faith with the gifts that God give us. Notice what he says. Here's the reason, verse 12. For the maturing, King James uses the word perfecting. It means to mature. For the maturing or the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. God gives us all unique giftedness so that when we employ those gifted, uh, giftedness into the church family, into the body of Christ, what happens is we grow in our faith. And the church is built up, the body of, of Christ is built up and is strengthened. Notice, and how long do we do that? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or complete or mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he just concludes by saying, that way we will not be tossed around with every wind of doctrine, not knowing what we believe, but we will know what we believe, and we will know why we believe it. Speak in truth and love, verse 15. We may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part makes increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. So, we are working together in oneness, in unity, to build uh, the household of faith using the talent and the giftedness that God has given us. Now listen, as we close, maybe you're here tonight and you, you don't really understand what your giftedness is and you think, Pastor Darrell, I just don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. Maybe you haven't discovered that or you haven't found the place to plug that in, but listen, God has, God has put within you a way to bless the body of Christ. And uh, every one of you here have something to offer the kingdom of God. Isn't that right? Every one of us have something to offer. Because remember, we're building the household of faith, a brick here and a brick there and a brick here and a brick there. And we're building this household of the faith, um, the kingdom of God, as we plug in our giftedness. Teaching or singing is not necessarily pointed out in the scriptures as giftedness, but it is certainly a talent that is used for God. Hospitality, where you have people to your home, or you go out to share a meal with them, or giving, or praying, or a number of different ways that we serve, but we're serving to strengthen and to grow the wonderful kingdom of God.